If you would, I'd invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis chapter 17. As uh, we are back in Genesis this morning, Genesis 17. We'll be reading from uh, the entire chapter this morning. Moses writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says this, Now when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout your generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. God said further to Abraham, Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. A servant who is born in the house or who is bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your descendants, a servant who is born in your house or who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and indeed I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be the mother of nations." Kings of peoples will come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Will a child be born to a man one hundred years old? And will Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I will bless him and make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall become the father of twelve princes, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. When he finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all the servants who were born in the house and all who were bought with his money, every male 
among the men of Abraham's household and circumcised the flesh of their foreskin in the very same day as God had said to him. Now Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael his son was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. In the very same day, Abraham was circumcised, and Ishmael his son. All the men of his household who were born in the house or bought with money from a foreigner were circumcised with him. Now as we've been uh, working through the text of Genesis to this point, we have seen in, in recent weeks how God had promised Abraham more than once that he would make him a great nation, that he would bless him, that he would make his name great, that all nations would be blessed through him. God had promised to give to Abram and his descendants the land of Canaan and to make his descendants as numerous as the dust of the earth. God had promised that Abram's heir would come forth from his own body and that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars of heaven. And that last promise, that promise of Genesis 15, was ratified by the Lord when he had symbolically passed through the carcasses of the dead animals which Abram had killed. Now the Lord in these things had been making these promises to Abram and making them repeatedly. Now two weeks ago, we saw in Genesis 16 how Abram and Sarai had made a mess of things by trying to produce that promised heir through Hagar. And they said, caused lots of problems, to put it very mildly. There was sin involved on the parts of Abram, Sarai, and Hagar. But now, after all of that had happened, the Lord comes to Abram and establishes his covenant with him. And really, what happens here in Genesis 17 is not so much the making of a new covenant with Abram as it is a further elaboration and confirmation of the covenant which was initiated by the Lord back in chapter 15. The promise of offspring for Abram and the promise of the giving of the land which were present in Genesis 15 are reiterated here, though there are some new elements that are present here in Genesis 17 which were not clearly articulated back in chapter 15. The most obvious in this regard is probably the covenantal sign of circumcision which was given to Abraham. Now, according to Romans 4.11, circumcision for Abraham was a seal of the righteousness of faith which he had while he was uncircumcised. It, in other words, was an outward sign that he was justified by faith. It was a sign of God's covenant. And this sign of the covenant was to be in the flesh not only of Abraham and his offspring, but also in the flesh of all males of his household, servants born in the household or bought with money. And you see also here the promise from God that he would be God to Abraham and his descendants after him. You see that in verse 7. You see that similarly in verse 9 where the Lord says, I will be their God. Now this was new revelation and... In addition, uh, we see the, the promise here that, that Sarah would be the mother of the promised heir. And again, this is new revelation. It was in ignorance of that piece of the puzzle that Abram and Sarai and Hagar had conspired to have this child of the promise back in chapter 16. Again, this is a bad idea all around, brought bad consequences in its wake. But now... Sarah is promised to be the mother of this heir. And now a specific timetable is set there in verse 22. Sarah would bear Isaac, the child of promise, 
in roughly a year, the same season, next year, from that time at which the Lord spoke to Abraham. And then we also see clearly here that there are covenant obligations that are laid upon Abraham in verse 1, where the Lord says, walk before me and be blameless. And so as we consider this chapter this morning, we'll do so under, under three main headings. First of all, the kindness of God to the unworthy. The kindness of God to the unworthy. Secondly, the covenant and its sign. The covenant and its sign. And then thirdly, the obligations of the covenant. So we've got the kindness of God to the unworthy, the covenant and its sign, and then the obligations of the covenant. So first of all, the kindness of God to the unworthy. We have seen more than once by now the sinfulness of Abram, the bad decisions that he had made, but the Lord was still kind and good to Abram. He continued to forgive, continued to be gracious to Abram. God had given Abram that initial promise back in Genesis 12 that he would be a great nation. And then Abram gave up his wife to Pharaoh because he feared for his own life. And then again, in Genesis 15, he received the promise from God that he would indeed become the father and that a son would come from his own body. But when he saw that this was not working out too well with his barren wife, Sarai, he took Hagar and had a son with her. Abram was a man who walked with God and who trusted God, but yet he did not walk with God nor trust God as he ought. And yet, God did not fire him from the covenant, so to speak. God did not go back on what he had promised. He comes to Abram again and again after these debacles and sins and establishes his great covenant with him. He blesses him. And a part of that blessing involved the change in his name that we see there in verse 5. Up to this point, his name had been Abram, which is exalted father. But now his name is changed slightly, enlarged to Abraham, which means father of a multitude. As one writer expressed it, the enlargement of Abraham's name is symbolic of the enlargement of his posterity. Abraham na Abraham's name grows and also his posterity will grow. And we can speak similarly of, of Sarah. Sarah, after all, was the instigator of that plot in chapter 16 for Abram to take Hagar, have a son with her, and then she ended up treating her maidservant badly. And yet God says explicitly in verse 16, I will bless her. She would be the mother of Isaac, the mother of the child of promise. And the Lord changes her name as well from, from Sarai, which means my princess or perhaps princesses, to Sarah, which is princess. Absolutely. Perhaps we might say the princess. And there's even a blessing here for, for Ishmael. You'll notice how when the Lord promises that Sarah will have a son in verse 16 with the implication that that son of Sarah will be the recipient of the covenant blessings, you'll notice there how Abraham pleads on behalf of his son Ishmael. He says in verse 18, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And this is a perfectly reasonable request on the part of Abraham. We might tend to view Ishmael as the child born of a sinful innovation on the part of Abraham. And so we might think, well, let's just, let's just kind of get him out of the picture. The sooner, the better. 
Now, certainly Ishmael was a child born of sinful innovation, but we need to keep in mind that he had been Abraham's only son for 13 years to this point. And just based on the information that's given to us here in the text of Genesis, Abraham is probably thinking for all of those 13 years that this is actually the child of promise. This is my heir, my son, through whom these promises from God will be fulfilled. And now, 13 years down the line, Abraham receives news from the Lord that this is actually not the plan. Sarah is going to have a son, and this will be the son of promise. And so we can certainly understand Abraham's concern for Ishmael. Like any other father, he loved his son. He wanted God's blessing to be upon him. And God answered him. He said that he would bless Ishmael. Ishmael would become the father of 12 princes. And indeed, we find the fulfillment of that promise recorded in Genesis 25, verses 12 through 16, in which we're told about 12 sons born to Ishmael, and they are described as 12 princes according to their tribes. In all of this, in God's kindness to Abram, to Sarah, and to Ishmael, we see the kindness of God to the unworthy. Abraham and Sarah deserved nothing good from God, but God still blessed them. God was faithful to them. He was faithful to his promise, faithful to his covenant, despite their unfaithfulness, despite their faltering along the way. In all of this, we see God's kindness to the undeserving. Now, at the largest level, we certainly understand that. Our Lord Jesus tells us that the Father causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous, Matthew 5.45. And so we know in the big picture that God is good to the wicked in the sense of shedding upon them what we commonly refer to as, as God's common grace, his, his kindness, even, even to the wicked and the ungodly. But we can go further than that. We see here in Genesis 17 that God is covenantally kind, even to those who deserve it not. No one earns the right to enter into covenant with God. No one earns the right to stay in covenant with God after they have entered. Our entering into covenant with God and our staying in covenant with God is all on account of God's grace. And that is to say, our saving relationship with God through faith in Christ is from beginning to end completely of grace. We never deserve to enter into a saving relationship with God. We never deserve to stay in a saving relationship with God. We are from beginning to end debtors to the mercy of God who justifies the ungodly. God is kind, covenantally kind to the unworthy and therefore, Paul says to Titus in Titus 3, 3 through 5, We also, once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. And likewise, that same apostle, after describing his own previous life as that of being a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, says to Timothy that the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving a full acceptance 
that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Paul says that me is the worst. God was using me as an example to show that if the Lord can save me from the blasphemy, the persecution, the violence in which I was wrapped up, the Lord can save anybody. And so, friends, allow God's kindness and covenant faithfulness that we see to Abraham here in Genesis 17 to direct your hearts to the gospel of Christ in which the forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with God, and eternal life are freely offered to us on the basis of Christ's death and resurrection for us. As the gospel is preached, Christ is calling all who hear to come to him and to trust in him and to receive his kindness to enter into a saving relationship with him. That saving relationship of which we read this morning in our unison reading from Jeremiah 32 where the Lord says, I will make an everlasting covenant with them and I will not turn away from them to do them good and I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. In Jesus Christ, the Lord's kindness is offered to you. And so turn away from your sins and trust in Jesus today. And if you have more questions about what that means, you can talk to me after the service or you can talk to another Christian whom you know here. We'd love to tell you more about what that means to receive the Lord's kindness. Because the Lord is kind even to the unworthy and the ungodly. Now in speaking of the Lord's covenant, we need to examine the particularities of this covenant with Abraham and consider uh, the covenant sign, which was circumcision. And we need to see how these things point us to Christ. And that's our second point for this morning, which is the covenant and its sign. As I said before, the covenant here in Genesis 17 is not so much the making of a new covenant with Abraham as it is the further elaboration and confirmation of the covenant which was initiated by the Lord back in Genesis chapter 15. Now, and again, one of the things we've considered uh, sometimes as we've been working our way through the book of Genesis is how God relates to humanity on the basis of a covenant. There was... Uh, The covenant of works back in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, where the Lord commanded Adam that from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. There was a covenant with Noah in Genesis 6.18 where the Lord said, But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wives and your sons' wives with you. And now the Lord is establishing a covenant with Abraham. And as we think about the subject of covenant, we need to make sure that we understand clearly what we are talking about because often we think uh, in terms of of human covenants, which are entered into by by two parties of of equal standing. We were talking about the issue of covenant in Sunday school this morning with with David and Jonathan. Or many times we'll think of, uh, of a marriage covenant in which both the husband and the wife enter into the agreement freely and they make mutual promises to one another. And thus, if one or the other of them is at the altar, so to speak, and doesn't say, I do, there's no no covenant. There's, There's no binding agreement between them. 
But here in Genesis, when the Lord makes a covenant, the Lord simply lays down the terms and makes the promises accordingly as he sees fit. I think J.G. Voss described the, the biblical idea of covenant quite well when he said that in the Bible, God's covenant is not an agreement or compact between God and man as equal negotiating parties. God and man are not equals. God is sovereign and man is subject. God, by his absolute authority, ordains and establishes the covenant, imposing it on man. Man has no part in determining the terms of the covenant arrangement. His part is only to obey. And this covenant here with Abraham is part of a part of a bigger story, a bigger plan, a larger covenant, if you will, called the covenant of grace. After Adam had violated the covenant of works by eating the forbidden fruit in Genesis chapter 3, very soon thereafter, the Lord came to Adam and Eve with a gracious promise, the promise of Genesis 3.15, that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And this is the opening announcement, as it were, to humanity of the covenant of grace. In other words, the, the outworking of God's plan of salvation, that one day from the seed of the woman Eve would arise a Savior who would crush the enemy of God's people. And this plan, though first announced to mankind in the Garden of Eden, was certainly not formed by God after the fall of Adam and Eve. The plan of salvation had already been formed. The three persons of the Holy Trinity had already agreed in this great plan of salvation And this plan then is announced to Adam and Eve in the garden in seminal form in Genesis 3.15. Again, this is God relating to his people by means of covenant, God establishing the rules for his people and the terms of eternal life. And this was a covenant of grace because the terms for life and salvation could no longer be earned by good works. When, uh, When Adam was in his state of innocence, He could stand by his works had they been good or fall by his works had they been evil. His works were evil and he fell. So as far as the covenant of works was concerned, Adam was guilty and a sinner. And thus there is no longer any room for salvation by good works, either for Adam or for any of his posterity. For we are all sinners in Adam. And throughout the storyline of Scripture then, there are various administrations of the covenant of grace, God relating to, to people at different time periods in different ways. And so there were, there were faithful and godly men between the time of Adam and Abraham. There were men like Enoch who walked with God. There was Noah who was a righteous and blameless man in his time. And at the time of Abraham, God renewed this, this covenant of grace with Abraham, promising that the Messiah would come from his descendants and that through him all nations of the world would be blessed. And as Paul tells us in Galatians 3.8, this promise to Abraham was the gospel being preached beforehand in that it was the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. And Paul goes on and tells how all who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the believer. And as we see here, In Genesis 17, the sign of this covenant was circumcision. Again, Romans 4.11 tells us that Abraham had received this sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness uh, by faith that he had had while he was uncircumcised, right? Think Genesis 15. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him 
as righteousness. So he was counted as righteous on the basis of faith, and then later on this sign of circumcision functioned as the seal of the righteousness that he had while he was uncircumcised. And therefore the Abrahamic covenant is thus an administration of the covenant of grace. Abraham is justified by faith, and the promise given to him implied then that the Gentiles would be justified by faith as well. And the covenant, the covenantal history and the different dispensations of the covenant then continues, as we see in, in Old Testament history. When the descendants of Abraham had grown in number and were led out of Egypt by Moses to constitute their own national and political entity, they received the covenant of Mount Sinai. And the covenant at Sinai had elements of, of grace and law, both mixed within it. It has, as uh, one theologian put it, an evangelical face as well as a legal face. The covenant at Sinai was legal and contained elements of the covenant of works within it because, as Paul says in Galatians 3.12, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. And the one who did not live by them would be cursed. And therefore we read in Deuteronomy 27.26, Cursed is he who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. That was the legal face of, uh, of the covenant at Sinai. But there was also an evangelical face, a gospel face of the covenant at Sinai in that the law showed us our need for redemption. It showed us under types and shadows how that redemption would come about by sacrifice and by cleansing and by priesthood. But, and Paul is very adamant about this in Galatians 3.15, the law that was given to Moses did by no means set aside the previous covenant with Abraham. The promise of justification by faith given to Abraham was not nullified by the covenant at Sinai with its mixed legal and evangelical faces. According to Galatians 3.19, the law was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. And thus the, the law at Sinai was imposed in order to make us see our sins more clearly and also to preserve the people of Israel as a distinct nation until the coming of the promised seed, our Lord Jesus Christ. And that promised seed would be the one who then institutes and ratifies the new covenant. The new covenant which is prophesied in places like Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, or Jeremiah 32, 38 through 40 that we read this morning, or also places like Ezekiel 11 and Ezekiel 36. And so in the Old Testament time, there are these, these various administrations or these various outworkings of the covenant of grace, finally working up to the final outworking, which is the new covenant in Christ. And this covenant with Abraham here in Genesis 17 is, is one of those Outworkings. It is a gracious covenant with God coming to Abraham and promising to make him the father of nations, promising to be God to him and to his offspring, and giving him this sign of the covenant, this circumcision which was to be in his flesh. This covenant was a way in which God was savingly interacting with fallen mankind, an administration of the covenant of grace. What we need to see here is that this covenant with Abraham points us to our Lord Jesus Christ and ultimately finds its final fulfillment in him. The purpose of this promise 
was ultimately to bring the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ, into the world. Jesus is the promised seed of Abraham, the one through whom all nations of the world are blessed. And as we, as we think about these things, it is worth our notice that in the new covenant in Christ, there are some similarities here to the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 17, as well as some differences. There is one sense in which the Abrahamic covenant was biological. In other words, if you were a biological descendant of Abraham, from an earthly point of view, you were in the covenant. You were marked with the sign of the covenant. You stood as an heir to the land and participated in the promise of bringing the Messiah into the world. Now, certainly, Gentiles could become proselytes, even could become Jews. You find actually rather striking language to that in Esther 8.17, where we're told that many among the peoples of the land became Jews. They were so, uh, so frightened at, uh, at the Jewish resistance of uh, the, the plot of Haman and so forth that they joined themselves to the Jewish people. But in the main, this was a, a biological national covenant. You were born into a Jewish family and you were circumcised. If you were a male child and your parents were obedient, then you had the covenant mark upon your flesh from the time that you were eight days old. But this mark of the Abrahamic covenant, important though it was, was pointing to something that is even more fundamental. You could have the mark of the covenant, circumcision, but never actually have the reality to which circumcision pointed. Circumcision was a seal of Abraham's justification by faith, but it was not a seal of justification by faith to everyone who had the sign of circumcision because not all of the circumcised had faith. This bodily circumcision of the covenant pointed to the necessity of the circumcision of the heart. Many had the circumcision of the body who did not have the circumcision of the heart. And thus it was that the Old Testament called the people of Israel to circumcise their hearts and also called them out for having uncircumcised hearts. And so Moses speaks to Israel in Deuteronomy 10:16. And he says, so circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. Similarly, the Lord speaks through Jeremiah to the same, says the same thing. Jeremiah 4.4, circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskins of your heart, men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, or else my wrath will go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. And again, he says, Jeremiah 9, 25 and 26, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, that I will punish all who are circumcised and yet uncircumcised, Egypt and Judah and Edom and the sons of Ammon and Moab and all those inhabiting the desert who clip the hair on their temples, for all the nations are uncircumcised and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised of heart. That was the problem. Circumcision of the flesh was easy. Circumcision of the heart, cutting off what was evil in here and submitting oneself to the Lord, that was impossible as far as their own flesh was concerned. And so in His grace, the Lord promises to do for the people what they could not do for themselves. That promise was given as early as Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, where we read, Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. 
And if you read Deuteronomy 30, verse 6 in context, it has a similar ring to the, the new covenant promises that are found in places like Jeremiah 31 and 32 and Ezekiel 36. The language used is not precisely the same in all of those places, but the gist of the promises certainly runs along the same lines. There are promises of restoration for the nation after they had sinned and been exiled and promises of this change of heart that the Lord would bring to his people. And therefore, it should come as no surprise to hear those words that we heard in our scripture reading from Colossians 2 this morning. Colossians 2.11, where Paul says that in him, in Christ, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. This is the true circumcision, the ultimately necessary circumcision toward which the circumcision of the flesh was pointing. Though for the Old Testament Israelites, circumcision was a necessary right, now the situation is what we find in Galatians 5, 6, where Paul says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but faith working through love. And again he says, Galatians 6, 15, For neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. This is ultimately what matters, and this was ultimately what circumcision was pointing toward. And this is how the circumcision of the Abrahamic covenant finds its fulfillment in the circumcision of the heart, which is regeneration, new life from the Holy Spirit, which will be tangibly expressed in repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, Paul speaks in these ways. In Philippians 3, verses 2 and 3, where he says, Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. He says, We are the true circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And then, for those whose hearts are circumcised, who receive that circumcision which is done without hands, baptism then is the outward sign of that inward reality. The rite of baptism is to be the outward sign which points to the inward grace which has been received by the believer, namely indicating that their heart actually has been circumcised by Christ. And thus Paul connects baptism not so much with the physical circumcision of the Old Testament but with the circumcision of the heart in those verses in Colossians 2, 11 and 12, when he says, In him you are also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Baptism is thus the outward sign of the, the inward working of Christ that we were that we are now in him dead to our sin and alive to God through Jesus Christ. It's in this way that circumcision points us forward to the gospel and to the work of Christ in making us new. And we should also note here from Genesis 17 that there was an aspect of this covenant that was applicable to children. There were benefits to children from being in the Abrahamic covenant. You see that clearly there in verse 7. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. 
Now, what does that mean? Well, at the very least, it certainly does not mean. It does not mean that every descendant of Abraham had a saving relationship with God. It certainly doesn't mean that. We could walk through the Old Testament and find many examples of those who did not have a saving relationship with God to easily prove the point. But with that said, it does not follow that the words of verse 7 are meaningless. There was, in fact, some benefit to being descended from Abraham, a spiritual benefit which many times, by the grace of God, would flower into saving faith. And I think that was part of Paul's train of thought in Romans 2 and 3, the end of Romans 2, the beginning of Romans 3, and I think this uh, lends some credence to this idea. And so Paul says at the end of Romans 2, verses 28 and 29, he says, He is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. And again, this is exactly what we have been discussing. Paul is showing that internal circumcision, not external, is that which counts in the sight of God. But then he follows up in chapter 3 by asking and answering a reasonable question which might follow given what he had just said. You know, if, if one would say, well, it's this internal circumcision that counts, what advantage has the Jew? That's, that's the question he asks. Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Paul says, great in every respect. First, uh, of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. Again, there were, there were advantages that came to the Jews. They had the scriptures. They had a mark in their flesh that should have reminded them that their hearts needed to be changed. And even though with the, the change in the administration of the covenants, we understand that the outward sign of the covenant, which is now baptism, ought to be applied to those individuals whose hearts have actually been circumcised by Christ, whose hearts have been changed, nevertheless, there still is an advantage for the children of believers today. And I think that that advantage actually approximates the advantage that came to that of the children of Old Testament believers and so when we read Genesis 17:7, I don't think that we should just walk away from it and say simply, well, that was for Old Testament believers and their children, but there's nothing even remotely parallel for us today. I don't think we should do that at all. And I say that uh, because of what we find in the New Covenant promises of Jeremiah 32, uh, 38 through 40, which we read together in our, in our unison reading. And so it might be, might be helpful if you've got a bulletin or want to turn there uh, to those words in Jeremiah 32 again. The Lord says, They shall be my people, and I will be their God. Give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever. For their own good, and the good of their children after them. I will make them with them an everlasting covenant, that I will not turn away from doing good to them, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts, that they may not turn from me. What's going on there in Jeremiah 32 is a, is a reiteration of the promise of the new covenant. It's a reiteration of Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. 
Though the precise and exact same language is not used throughout, nevertheless, the, the ideas are certainly the same. The same ideas are present there in Jeremiah 32 as they are in Jeremiah 31 and other places like Ezekiel 11, Ezekiel 36. Jeremiah 32:40 speaks of this arrangement as an everlasting covenant. This everlasting covenant is the new covenant. He says that they would be his people, that he would be their God. Verse 39, he would give them one heart and one way. He would give them a heart that is intent on him and take away the divided loyalties. They may fear him always. This is the circumcision of the heart. And then in verse 39, the Lord speaks of the children of these believers. The Lord promises to give them one heart and one way that they may fear his name for their good and for the good of their children after them. In other words, God's gracious work in the lives of his people would not only be for their good, but it would be for the good of their children after them as well. Matthew Henry commented helpfully and said, As their departures from God had been to the prejudice of their children, so their adherence to God should be to the advantage of their children. We cannot better consult the good of posterity than by setting up and keeping up the fear and worship of God in our families. Now certainly we know quite clearly that not all children of believers are saved. That's not what is being promised there in Jeremiah 32, nor is that what's being promised in, Jeremiah, or in Genesis 17. This didn't happen in Old Testament times. It doesn't happen in New Testament times. But what we can say in both the Old and New Testament times is that children of believers are the recipients of a distinct blessing. How could it be otherwise? If children grow up in homes where they have the opportunity to hear the law of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ at a young age and have the opportunity of seeing their parents live lives of joyful, reverent, wholehearted obedience to the Lord, surely such an upbringing is for the good of the children who have it. As one who was blessed to have it, I can say it was for my good, especially for me as a boy, as a young man, to see a man in my life, namely my father, who loved the Lord and walked with the Lord, who loved the Bible, trusted the Word of God, and seek to teach it to me. That, that is an unspeakable blessing. Surely, it is a blessed advantage to have an upbringing like Timothy. Paul said, 2 Timothy 3.15, that Timothy had known from childhood the sacred writings, which were able to make one wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Receiving the benefits of the new covenant, being united to Christ by faith, and receiving a heart that loves, trusts, and fears, and obeys the Lord, receiving a heart that is cleansed by the blood of Jesus, is to receive a blessing that is good for us and is good for our children after us. It's no absolute promise that the children of believers will be saved, but it is a statement that the Lord's work in his people in the new covenant is also for the good of their children. Spurgeon commented on Jeremiah 32, 39 by saying, Wholehearted Christians are usually blessed with a posterity of a like kind. Consecrated men and women live to see their children following in their steps. Be thorough and true, and your family will respect your faith. The almost inevitable consequence of respect in a child toward his parent is a desire to imitate him. It is not always so, but as a rule, it is so. If the parents live unto God in a thorough-hearted way, their sons and daughters aspire to the same thing. 
They see the beauty of religion at home around the fireside and their conscience being quickened. They are led to pray to God that they may have the like piety so that when they themselves commence a household, they may enjoy the like happiness. Certainly, if any of you are the children of eminently godly parents and are living in sin, your parents' lives condemn you. This everlasting covenant is for our good and for the good of our children after us. Now this covenant with Abraham and its sign thus point us ahead to Christ. Christ's work in circumcising our hearts and even to the fact that Christ's work in his people in the new covenant is for their good and for the good of their children after them. Now that brings us to our, our third point for this morning and uh, rest assured I will be very brief here. The, the obligations of the covenant. In biblical terms, again, God sets the parameters for the covenant He makes the promises, he gives the rules, the obligations for his people. And we see that here in verse 1 of Genesis 17. The Lord says, walk before me and be blameless. The idea here of walking with God is that of being loyal to God, or perhaps of of walking with God in faith. This idea of being blameless is is a call to moral uprightness. One could certainly be accounted as blameless who was not absolutely sinless. We see that in the case of Job. Job certainly was a sinner, but the opening uh, verses of the book of Job refer to Job as, as blameless and upright, fearing God, turning away from evil. To be blameless in this sense, as, as one writer put it, is to be sincere, no hypocrite, one who had the real fruits of holiness and piety, grace in his heart and conversation. This is, this is what it means to be blameless. And these covenant obligations which were laid upon Abraham are likewise laid upon all who would be the recipients of God's gracious covenant. Walk before the Lord and be blameless. This applies to me and to you in our relationship with Christ. We are to walk before the Lord, loyal to him, day in, day out. We are to walk blamelessly, to be sincere turn from sin, to seek the ways of righteousness and holiness, to walk in love toward the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And if at any point we find ourselves not walking before the Lord, not living blamelessly, we need to be quick to turn and to repent. Again, as we've seen, God is gracious and covenantally kind to the unworthy. God is quick to receive his prodigals back to himself. So my friends, if you're a Christian, this text calls you this morning, as it calls me, to walk before the Lord and to be blameless, to be sincere in walking with him and serving him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love and grace, which we see here in Genesis 17. We thank you that this points us to Christ and to his work for us. Lord, we pray that we would be uh, people of the faith of Abraham, that we would trust in you and so be justified. And Lord, we ask that you would help us, that you would strengthen us, that we would walk before you, be blameless, that we would lead upright lives for the glory of Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.